Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Aggressive Balance Podcast. I'm Dennis Morton, founder and principal of Morton Brown Family Wealth. As a financial advisor and business owner, I'm constantly looking to achieve balance in my professional and personal life. In this space, I look to friends, mentors, and fellow community leaders for inspiration. In this episode, I get to explore the creative mind of John Dodds. From 1960s pirate radio to high-level marketing and branding strategies, you'll have a chance to unearth the uniqueness of an elite strategist. My guest today is John Dodds. John is a brand and marketing strategist who's worked for such multinational companies as Shell and Air Products, where he served as global brand and marketing communications director. His mission has been and continues to be helping companies tell their unique stories to the world. As founder of The Sharp End, LLC, he's launched brands, managed reputations, and guided decision makers as they plan and execute their communication strategy. John serves on the board of the Nonprofit and Business Council of the Greater Lehigh Valley Chamber of Commerce, the board of WDIY, and the marketing committee of ArtsQuest. He also hosts the Tuesday evening jazz program, Doodlin, once per month on WDIY. John, I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. Thanks for joining me. Dennis, uh, pleasure. Absolute pleasure. We're going to talk today about storytelling and unearthing the uniqueness of brands. But I wanted to start with something that's very unique to your background, and that's your early exposure to radio, specifically pirate radio in the 1960s in England. Can you tell me about that experience and how it influenced you? Wow. Yes, it was a huge in, uh, interest for me because I was a impressionable young lad. And I know over here you really wouldn't understand because there's so many uh, thousands of radio stations here that the, uh, the the wavelength in the UK is quite limited. And uh, back in the 60s, it was kind of BBC and you heard a pop song uh, maybe once an hour on the BBC if you were lucky. And this was at the time of the explosion of, of music from the Beatles, the Stones. And these pirate radio stations popped up off the North Sea around the UK to cater for that audience. And it was just at the time of the uh, swinging 60s in London, a Carnaby Street. And uh, so the music, the dress, everything was very special. And I was, oh, I guess it must have been uh, 10, 11, 12, 13 kind of time. And it just meant so much to me. And so uh, I got to love radio through the pirate stations. And then they were banned by the government, which made it even more of a, a mission for many youngsters like me to hear this kind of music. So then gradually the, the, the government allowed commercial radio and now there's, there's all sorts of radio, but no one would have believed that in order to hear the Beatles, the Kinks, the Who and whoever back in those days, the only way you could listen to it would be to tune into one of these stations that were floating off the North Sea, um, braving all the winds just to play pop music. And there's a, there's a movie out right. a few years ago. It was by the guy who did uh, Love Actually, and it's, uh, yeah. it's, it's a wonderful, fun movie. But it's the truth about radio in the 60s for, for the UK. And so that captured my interest. And uh, I've loved radio ever since. And when I came to America and uh, I saw that we had a wonderful little community radio station called WDIY here, I immediately wanted to get involved. And I've been involved with them for over 20 years. They do such a fantastic service. And so for me, for someone who literally marched on Downing Street to try and get these radio stations to have my own <laughs> jazz show, it's, uh, it, uh, I would never have believed it. So was there something about the role of the DJ that appealed to you? Because these DJs at that time, they became stars in their own right. Was there something about that role that kind of influenced you too? 
Oh, my goodness, yes. I mean, they literally braved uh, the gales of the North Sea. And in fact, a couple of times, Radio Caroline uh, went uh, aground and they had to winch these guys on to shore. Uh, So they were risking their lives. But I remember the date, uh, 14th of August, 1967 was when they were banned. And then Radio Caroline carried on. If anyone is interested, just has to uh, Google Johnny Walker, Radio Caroline, 15th of August. He had this stirring speech about we're going to carry on. And Johnny Walker's still on, uh, ironically, the BBC now, and he has one of those wonderful voices. But it also formulated my my sense of music, too, because I was able to listen to the Beatles, the Stones, and they played a lot of the American music, like the Doors, and even bands like the Electric Prunes, who I began to love. And uh, so it was such a diversity of music. That's what attracted me. The DJs were personalities. Uh, they had a swagger about them. And uh, there was something very special about them. So how did this migrate into a career in marketing and storytelling and branding? Where where did that spark come from? I I think it was probably more of a a passionate pastime. Um, I I got a job on a local radio station called BBC Radio London, just mixing tapes at one stage. And when I was a kid, I um, went on a geography field trip. And I went up to town, which was a very exciting time. And I got off the train and I looked at this huge building right in the middle of the South Bank and in the heart of London. And it was the Shell Centre. And I said, I'm going to work there. Wow. I just said, I'm going to work there. And I I just felt like a a calling for me. Um, All of the people coming in and out looked so important and had a purpose about them. I wasn't a great student. Back in those days, I didn't have business studies or marketing uh, courses. And uh, I loved English, but I couldn't do English because I was too frightened of the uh, the master. So I went and did some, some uh, higher level stuff in my high school, if you like, uh, which I didn't really enjoy. It wasn't until I joined Shell, which I actually did do. I went for the interview, got the interview, started at the bottom, and I just felt I'd, I'd made it. It was such an exciting time. And what Shell did, and I think companies really, really should go back to think about, was that because I didn't go to university, I chose Shell as, if you like, my career, my vocation. They trained me. So they paid for me to go on marketing courses. So I did a marketing degree um, paid for by Shell. They paid for my books, paid for my uh, the course. If I had attendance, I had like a 98% attendance. When I got my degree, they put me into a job which was more marketing oriented. I did the same thing with my advertising degree. They paid for that. So it was a wonderful development, both academically and and from a career point of view. And uh, I will always thank Shell for that, uh, both for being uh, a great company. Uh, I know they're under pressure these days because of the, um, the green revolution, if you like. But as a career for me, it was outstanding. I was able to, in some ways, make my own career from that. I was in operations, I was in sales, public affairs, advertising, and it was a, a fantastic grounding. In our community here in the Lehigh Valley, there are companies of all sizes. They tend to be small and middle market, not you know global companies like Shell. You've unearthed some universal truths about how brands develop and, and how, how to market. What were some of those early truths that you learned from large multinational companies that are applicable for companies of all sizes? I think, to be honest, uh, to tell the truth is the most important thing. I've I spent many years doing crisis management and uh, mm-hmm. and reputation management, and a crisis is an unmanaged issue. And if you understand what the issues are with your company, and there are always plenty, 
whether you're a small or a medium-sized or large company, there will always be issues. And you can either uh, swipe them under the carpet or you can address them and manage them and be honest about them internally and externally. And it's hopefully then unlikely you'll get a crisis. And if you do, if you tell the truth, you never have to think about what you're going to say. So I would absolutely say as far as a reputation is concerned and your brand is concerned, whether it's small, medium, large company, think about the issues you have. That's the reputation element. And think about what makes you special. So one of them is about differentiation, your brand. One is how truthful you are with the way you run your business, and that's your reputation. And I think as far as a brand's concerned, I think a lot of companies forget what it is that makes them special. They are busy. They haven't got time to sit and think about things. Business is coming in until it doesn't. And when it doesn't, you struggle to find out, you blame the competitor, you blame the market, or you blame the customer. You you don't look at yourself. And I think really it's very important for companies of whatever size to always look at yourself. Are you delivering the promise that how you started, your heritage story, your legacy story, why you started, why you're still in business? It doesn't just happen day to day. Everything is changing. And so you have to constantly look at what the promises that you make to your customers, to your employees, to your other stakeholders, to your local officials, to your community. Am I fulfilling that promise? And what is that promise? And maybe the promise needs to be refined from time to time to keep you relevant. And for many companies now, that promise may have um, be evolving or at least revisiting it. I'll let you bring up the, the idea of there, there's a promise that you make externally to your, your, your consumers, your constituency. Mm-hmm. There's the promise you make internally to the, the people who are on your team. Talk a little bit about unearthing that uniqueness as it applies to attracting and retaining talent. Oh, that's such a great point, Dennis, because more than ever now, uh, companies, small, medium, and large, are under pressure in that area. And we talk about the great resignation, but I actually refine it and call it the great realization, because a resignation is an outcome of something. And the outcome is that the world has realized that it's never going to be the same again. There's no such thing as a new normal. It isn't, there isn't an, any normal. This is new territory for everybody. And when you look at people who've been at home, people have been forced to work, people that are nearing retirement, people who are just starting out, everyone has had time to think. If they've had time to think, they either are saying to themselves, is this what I want to do with my life? Whether it's a personal relationship, whether it's a business relationship, whether it's a company, people have had time to think. And if they haven't had time to think, it's probably because they've been on the front lines and uh, we are in their internal debt, whether you are uh, in the uh, medical sector, the wonderful nurses and doctors that have taken care of us, um, or whether you be frontline service workers who've been providing food to us and had to uh, brave a lot of danger to support us. They probably haven't had too much time to think. But for many of us, we've had time to sit and think about what we want to do. And if you've been nearing retirement and you didn't go out and you saved a bit more, you say, well, hey, I can retire now. Right. And that's a great realization. And maybe if you're uh, in your 30s and you're in a, in a job that you're wondering why you are, I know many people uh, who have said, I'm not doing this anymore. And so I think what companies have to do, and I see them doing it, they're throwing money at the problem. Instead of giving 10 bucks an hour, they're giving 15 bucks an hour. 15 bucks an hour, they're having a sign-on bonus or something like that. You're just going to hire mercenaries. You're not going to hire long-term employees. What you need to do as a company is to go deep into what makes you special. Because what I, you know, I've been reading plenty of surveys around. And if you look at what makes a great company, 
having a, a lot of money isn't important for uh, for many people as actually having a a good relationship with your people at work, a good relationship with your boss, some uh, kind of training, having the flexibility uh, and not worrying about if you come in a little later because there's been a, a crisis at home or whatever. The trust element. I think this is the critical thing that people are looking for. What is it that I can trust about this company that will make me feel good and want to contribute? It's what is it the company is going to make me uh, feel when I get there? And uh, never more than now is, is that the truth. So under, unearthing your uniqueness goes right, goes right back to your heritage, right back to your legacy story, to understand why it is that you started great. Is it still relevant? Are you still doing the same thing with the same people and saying, oh, by the way, we're coming back to work and nothing has changed apart from that. You are doomed to failure if that is your approach. I love that you bring up this idea of the negative connotation of the great resignation because I think it implies quitting without something on the other side, like resigning, just stepping back. But that's not what's happening. It's really more of a discernment process. People saying it's not, it's no longer this, it's more of that on the other side. And whether it was the pandemic that gave us time for that or external, other external forces, I agree. I think that it's been fascinating to see people reimagining, re-envisioning, and companies, ha- leaders have to keep up with that. Absolutely. And why I term it the great realization is precisely what you say. It's because it is people thinking about what they want to do with their lives, what they want to do with their career, what they want to do with their home life. To be honest, we've had probably time to think much more about our personal relationships, how good they are, or maybe how not good they are. And unfortunately, you know, for some that might not be great. For others, it's actually been enriching. And maybe the fact that uh, for some of us, working from home has meant it's quite tense because you have kids around and they haven't been at school. And so that's quite difficult. For others, it's actually been an eye-opener as to how easy it is to do the job that you do. And if your boss or your company doesn't see that, then maybe you've got to go somewhere else. I, I think it was Goldman Sachs that said that working from home is an aberration. Uh, Dangerous comment dangerous. For, uh, for a company. Now, if, if you like that culture and you want to be part of the masters of the universe, then fine. But for many others, and I know other consulting companies have taken a much more open view that says, no, we're going to let people work from home, make it their choice. It might be a default. Because at the end of the day, for consulting companies, we're after your brains, not necessarily the fact you're sitting in your office. And uh, we all know that some of the best ideas come from when we're actually relaxing and being in an environment where uh, we have time to sit and think. And uh, that is our equity. You know, for most companies, the equity of a company is uh, the intangible. I think I was reading somewhere that 70, 75% of the S&P 500's um, value is in intangibles. Uh, and that's brand, that's intangible assets, but it's also the knowledge, experience, and creativity of their workers. You said something uh, to me uh, several months ago in a conversation about, uh, we talked about that, finding that creative spark, and you said, go to an art gallery. You know, find that quiet time, just go somewhere to, to be inspired or find that environment that inspires you. And sometimes it is stepping away from the desk. It is, you know, spending that time in reflection in, in different surroundings. You also brought up something I think ties into the work that we do on the, on the financial advisory space, which is oftentimes people get caught up in someone else's story, like the Goldman Sachs story. Like, are you living someone else's life trying to become a master of the universe, or are you really focused on what your particular story is? Because that's where the challenges happen. When you're trying to be someone else, when you're trying to live someone else's career, someone else's relationships, 
but have unearthing that uniqueness to your story is, is an important place to be. Sometimes it happens early on in a career, sometimes it's later, but the fact that it's happening in mass now, I think is a positive, maybe one of the more positive things to come out the last couple of years. Yeah. And I think that you are doing a fantastic job with this particular podcast series because finance is spooky. It's really spooky. I mean, there's so many different elements to it. Most people may try and do it themselves and then get stuck when it comes to taxes or it comes to financial planning, but they don't know who to go to. And then they know that they're going to deal with uh, people that have a greater experience. And there's all these crazy financial words, um, which they don't understand. But you are personalizing it. And someone like Laurie Siebert on WDIY is a wonderful example. Yes. A true example of personalizing finance, not looking at it in terms of uh, what you can do for us. But really, she takes a great pleasure in explaining in exquisite detail how finance works for the person. And you do the same. You know, you're, you have a much broader perspective about how finance is. And I think that's that's if you like unearthing your uniqueness the fact that that you are approachable and you know like yourself and Laurie you don't think it's a spooky thing that you're going to go into a big room and someone's going to take all your money and charge a lot for it's a much more personable approachable uh tangible thing for customers and I think that's that's true for any industry you know if you wrap it all up in your own mystique to make you feel better that may make you feel better but it sure is a recipe for switching off your customers that's why I'm a great believer in stories. And I don't, you know, it's become the great marketing exercise because it beats the heck out of doing proper marketing. But stories is a very powerful thing. It's been around for, it's been around since the Egyptians. So, I mean, it's nothing new. I know marketers have grabbed onto it because uh, content is a big deal as you fill up your websites and, and your blogs and your social media. But as a, a way of explaining yourself, whether it is, in a board meeting or whether it is in a, um, a brochure or whether it is in a PowerPoint or, or anything, simple, clear, and accessible writing signals whether you are complicated and whether your company is complicated. It's so true. And, and you, know, you allude to really the power of language here. And I think that's such an important thing that every industry has its jargon. When you're working with a company, do you find that there's aversion to uh, really working on the language, to because really, that's, that's a big commitment sometimes to get past the jargon and, and to really to, to write, to, to think out loud. How do you help the companies that you work with to really focus on their language? Very interesting. Uh, mixed results, of course, um, mm. because there's certain terminology. I don't think I'd be able to persuade anybody who has an investor meeting that uh, uh, we should drop the, the the terminology that all of these analysts use uh, to describe basically as a company going great or going badly. They use these right. disguised terms like headwinds and all that kind of stuff. Why not, why not say we had a tough quarter, guys? You know, uh, oh, that sounds dodgy. Down goes the stock price. So we'll call it headwinds and think that no one's going to uh, work it out, you know. Um, right. But I think that many companies have uh, embraced it. In fact, one of the nicest stories, I think, for me was when it was in the 90s, I joined Air Products and I was working on a branding project for a part of the Air Products uh, technology group uh, in the UK. And we hired a, a design consultancy who included um, a writer, uh, but he was, he was a writer stroke um, a strategist. 
by the name of John Simmons. And uh, what John Simmons was able to do was to come into the company and explain that there is a, a, a more accessible way of explaining who you are. And so we incorporated that in our case studies and our knowledge papers. But we started then getting into a much deeper truth about the company. And uh, the president of Europe at the time, John Jones, uh, really liked the idea. And so well, why don't we do it for the whole company? So I came over to the States to do it. And I did it with John Simmons and our agencies at the time, which was a wonderful collaborative approach. It was a bit of a struggle to start with. But at the end of it, we came up with an approach to words that I think our products to this day. I mean, you, if you look at all the tankers and you look at the PowerPoint slides, it's tell me more, which was our concept, the fact that the agency understood that deeper understanding and lasting relationships were the core tenants of our products, because that's exactly what customers are all around the world told them. And and so talking and explaining in an accessible way, not simplifying or downplaying the importance of everything that our products delivers, was a very smart way. And in the end, we ended up putting our own people on our tankers. For 20 years, our, our own people were celebrated on the tankers. So it was about personalization. It was about understanding the company in a more human way. And so when companies do that, and I've done that with other organizations of late, when, pe- when companies do that, they really start to find themselves and they start to realize that the people feel liberated through words, through being able to explain their company in a simpler, clearer, more accessible way. And it doesn't really matter what business you're in. If you can explain your story simply and clearly and offer access, then I think that's a very attractive way. It doesn't mean that you're not technically adept or it doesn't mean that you you haven't got the knowledge or experience. It just means, I think it was Einstein that said, if you can't explain it simply, you probably don't understand it. Right, right. I, th- I think it really makes the case, and I love that you bring up the, the idea of making things more human, because I've, I've always felt that it's important for a leader in any field to read outside of their field and read very diversely, because you have to understand the language of humanity. That if you're coming in and talking your specific niche jargon, it's it's going to be clear to you, but no one else. You have to realize that nobody really speaks this way. And, and that language of humanity is really important if someone's then going to turn around and communicate what it is that you do, yeah. because it's not always your voice. Yeah. Try going home and telling your wife uh, that the ROI on the aroma of your work today is like, oh, do you want more potatoes with that or what? You know, it's like, yes. now, now tell me, dear, how was your day really? You know? How was it really? Exactly, exactly. Do you um, do you have a writing routine in, in your in your day day to day life? So I try. I've changed it quite considerably. I was a bit obsessive about it during the lockdown. I used to write a great deal about the day, almost too much so and include photographs and whatever. And then as things started to take off, I tried to, I changed it. I refined it to, uh, I get up quite early and I write my intent for the day, which sounds all very cerebral, but it isn't. It's basically to just understand what I want to achieve today, whether it's something emotional or something (laughs) simply as like, do a good podcast with Dennis kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I put my intent and then at the end of the day, I will just write down the path, what happened during the day, some of the key points. And then I'll also write down my learnings. What did I learn from this? What did I learn from talking with Dennis? What did I learn from speaking to the UK pensions office? What did I learn about the fact that um, I need to organize the technology on my Apple better? You know, all these little silly things. But there's 
some deep stuff and there's some practical stuff. So it's it, it's a balance between some of the emotional and some of the functional. Now, in terms of writing generally, I'm a member of the Dark Angels writing group and um, mm-hmm. I do that every Tuesday. And I would encourage anybody who has any interest in writing, it's free. You can go online uh, on a, in America on a Tuesday afternoon at two for an hour or a Tuesday evening. And it's, it came from John Simmons again, who I've been involved with, who started this group up as a result of a book that he wrote, which is coming out again in, in January called We, Me, Them and It. It's the definitive book on uh, writing uh, for business. It's everything from poetry to his biography to writing for business to case studies. And it's the definitive book on tone of voice and branding. But from that came Dark Angels Writing Group. And uh, this particular group, they do courses and you can go on them. And I've been on a number of them and uh, it's changed me dramatically. But but you can, can sample it every Tuesday for an hour. And it's a wonderful group of people, very friendly. Um, Some of them are brilliant writers. Some of them are, you know, aspiring writers. And everyone is encouraging and thoughtful and caring and interested. So it's, it's, it's not a spooky thing to do. So I kind of dedicate myself to that. Um, And then I'll do some other writing. I always keep a pad nearby. So if there's an idea that comes along and I'm, what I'm trying to do is to, uh, to get into a routine with a blog, I've been signally useless of late, but um, I'm hoping to get into just writing my thoughts in the day and putting it on a blog and then sharing it. Blogging is something that's been fits and starts with me, and I've struggled with, with the, uh, the the right way to do it. I've tried to have a more disciplined writing habit. Wow. I would read a, an obituary in the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal, and just reflecting on someone else's life well-led has brought up a lot of, you know, churned up a lot of emotion and in some interesting things to, to do that. So I've added that to my list of writing prompts that when I'm stuck or just trying to get words on the page, go read about somebody's interesting life. That's a, that's a great idea. Uh, I think the trouble with blogs is it's twofold. Number one is I don't have my computer in the shower ah. because that's where all the ideas come from. You know, uh, I've often joked that I should have charged my shower to expenses or something because all the great ideas come from the shower and there's no kind of pen waterproof pen and pencil I found that I go, oh my god I've got this idea you know so the idea comes along and then the, the problem with the execution with a blog is and maybe I'm making it too complicated is by the time you get it on the website you've got to post you've got to have the headlines you've got to SEO it you've got to get the right URLs you've got to get the right so ah, I, I'm gonna have breakfast screw it you know and uh, right. so it becomes right. too much of a pain in the neck. And what I need to do is to work out a simpler process so that I can actually just get the words in. And, and it goes back to a, a simple truth about writing at the moment. You know, at the one side is content, optimized content that has X number of words that are all optimized and put in all of the various Yoasts and browsers. But at the other end is poetry, uh, which is you read it, you write it, you don't care whether anyone hears about it or reads about it. And so the question about writing is, what is the purpose? Is the purpose to get more business or is it the purpose to actually just please yourself, clear your mind, share your thoughts with yourself and maybe a few, uh, a few buddies? And I think that's the challenge that most people face. There's a, there's a lovely advertising quote that says, dig deep until the product gives up its secrets. And I think one of the things that I really... I tell anyone I can is that if you truly want to, as a certainly as a supplier, a financial supplier, an advertising agency, or is to know your company's product, know your client's product. Don't just take their brief and write your stuff. 
really, really get into it. And there was a, a time, and I remember it very well, when we were struggling with a particular ad for our products. And I said to the creative team, I want you to go down to Houston and I want you to smell the sulfur because mm. we were doing an ad for the, the tonnage business there. And I wanted them to understand the intricacies of the business rather than sit in the agency and trying to create stuff. And they did. I sent the creative team down there and they uh, they spoke to the, the plant operators. They they saw Houston. Um, they saw the the dynamics of that place, the Deer Park, the Shell refinery there, or what used to be Shell, I think it still is. But just looking at the complexes, the air products complex uh, in all of these, you know, New Orleans, just to understand the dynamics of what they're dealing with, because that's who their customers are dealing with. They came back, did a great ad. It was really well received and got a good response. So you really have to dig deep until the product, the service, the company gives up its secret to you. That's when you know you can create a good ad. You can create content that is meaningful for a company. You cannot sit in a content factory. You have to invest the time. And clients have to invest the time in people who are who are going to write for them. A lot of people are taking on writers internally, and I think that's a good thing because you get much closer to the action. There's an important lesson in there for a content creator, for a writer, for, or for an entrepreneur. And it reminds me of the story of uh, Airbnb mm-hmm. when there was a, a podcast called Masters of Scale where the founder of Airbnb, they were pitching this idea to venture capital firms in the Silicon Valley you know, 10 years ago. And they got in front of one VC firm and they asked them to profile the company and they're going through their deck. And they asked them, they said, where are all of your customers? They said, well, we have a high concentration in Manhattan. That's where a lot of our real estate is. That's where a lot of our users are. He said, now, where are your offices? He says, well, we're in Palo Alto. He said, all right, you get one shot at this. If, you, if this is going to be as big as you think it's going to be, you have one shot to hear every positive, negative about the customer experience exactly as it's happening. When there's th- a thousand of them, you can do this. When there's a million of them, you won't be able to. So get to New York City right now and figure out how to make it an 11 out of 10 experience for those handful of people that are using your product now, and you'll never regret it. And, and I think that's the thing. Get on the ground. Go to Houston. Go to New York. Be where they are. And then turn around and communicate that, scale it, and, and, that's, and that, that opportunity will never be lost. I think that applies to a new product. It applies to a new company. No, well, thank you. That's a great story about Airbnb. And uh, they're obviously refining their uh, their model. They've had to do it with COVID. And uh, yeah, it, that's an interesting model. And again, you know, we get, we talk about different models. I, and I get, I don't know, I get kind of frustrated with this whole debate about marketing because um, so many people these days think marketing is social media. And it is so far mm-hmm. from the truth. Right. There's a quote um the Chartered Institute of Marketing many years ago, I think they've probably changed it three times since then, but uh, it's the management process for identifying, anticipating, and satisfying customer requirements profitably. And why I love that is it makes it incredibly clear about the role of marketing as a business process. It is not a comms tool. It is so much deeper than that. And Susan Yee was talking about this, I think, in your previous podcast, um, which was a great podcast. Thank you. She's a wonderfully smart woman, and uh, she she identified that marketing was the four P's, and 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 to a certain extent, I think it is. Uh, I think we've lost it. I think organizations have forgotten about it. If you think about the concept of identifying, anticipating, and satisfying, identifying is about research. It's about uh, ethnographics. It's about truly understanding a market before you even 
enter it. It's about product development. It's about under- refining that product. It's about targeting. It's about positioning. It's about getting the right price. It's about getting the right product configuration. It's about getting the right distribution. All of that should be integrated. And that is what marketing used to be. Right. Now, it's about how many likes did I get on my Instagram feed? Social media is a communications tactic. It is not a marketing strategy. Mm-hmm. And so what companies have to do is to look at that and, and go back and understand what it is that they want their marketers to do and what it is they want their communications professionals to do. Because if you lose all of the elements of marketing, what happens is that the marketing effort becomes disparate. It means that supply chain becomes the distribution arm. It means that the, the pricing expert, if it's not a, some algorithm, it is um, someone that's sitting in a back office um, defining a price. And you lose sense of the, the person that it matters most to, and that is the customer or the prospect. Yes. So to go back and look at marketing, see how it works in your company, and see how much more important it is to celebrate it and to define it in a much more grown-up way. I don't think the concept of that being an old-school way of looking at it, I mean, the customer experience has always been there. There's always needed. Now, digital has made the experience much more um, much more interesting and much more dynamic, but it's also what digital has done is make the imaginative companies better and the unimaginative companies much worse. Mm. And for me, I've, I've spoken to many people about including digital agencies who I deal with a lot, is that digital works best when humanity and technology work together in harmony. Uh, You go and you order a Starbucks on your app. You go to your local Starbucks and someone says, oh, good morning, Dennis. Your um, Starbucks frappe, latte, wappe, whatever it is, is ready for you just on the corner. So you've ordered it. It's been delivered, but you get that smiling face. So you know that you get exactly what you want. But at the same time, you get that personal approach that knows that someone has actually um, made that for you specially. It's got your name on it, and it's yours, and that experience is is there. You use the term imaginative companies. I've heard you mention before the idea of visualizing using vision boards. and I mean, this is really stepping back to kind of the originating concept of any business. Like, well, what are we trying to do here? How do you help people to, to kind of establish that vision? Because then, then all the tactics make sense. If there's a thread that's followed, your, whether it's your social media presence, you're writing anything else, it has to start with some kind of a compelling vision. How have you thought about that for, for some of the companies you've worked with? Right. I, firstly, I think about it for myself, actually. Mm. There's a very interesting, it's deep down in YouTube somewhere, it's called Daily Fill. And it's a guy on an Evernote uh, YouTube that talks about his Daily Fill. And I was fascinated by it because basically he talks about uh, his long term and his medium term. But they also talk about himself in terms of vision boards. And what he says is, if visualize what you want to have, maybe a, a vegetable garden, maybe it is a new car, maybe it is a, a job in California, and just cut and paste it on this vision board. And then it is amazing how these things manifest itself. A few years ago, I actually put a coffee machine, a really fancy coffee machine on this vision board of mine. And circumstances were such that I decided, that's it. I'm going to go to Portland. I'm going to have a barista course and I'm going to buy a really expensive coffee machine. And guess what? I did. Took my wife out there. We had a lovely time. And I have a a lovely coffee machine because it was where I wanted 
myself to be to understand coffee better, to actually uh, learn how to make a coffee better and treat myself after a long period of time. And so it's important for individuals to treat themselves. So that's where the vision board comes personally, is to to recognize the things you want, whether you want it with your family, whether you want to suddenly be hiking somewhere. Look for a beautiful picture of the family hiking and put it on there because it's a constant reminder. Now, in terms of companies, in terms of vision, I think it's really important to understand early whether a leader wants to get into that conversation. Mm. If it's not, quite honestly, all I'm interested in quarterly results, yeah, the vision thing is is tough. Right. Uh, I've dealt with a, a company, um, they're a communications company um, north of the Lehigh Valley, and they have a fascinating history. And they had a, a leader who was really different and was really willing to listen to looking at new ways of, of connecting with his people and connecting with the vision of the company. And it was such a fulfilling experience for me working with this, this digital agency to help them achieve that. And we did some amazing stuff, but we did it because we outlined, hey, we outlined some of the challenges, but we also outlined the, the opportunities. But there was, the back of all of this was going back to the roots going back to the roots of the company, the heritage of the company, the legacy story. And the other interesting thing was I was nowhere near the company when it was done and neither was the the agency. The people did it for themselves. And I think when you talk about branding exercises in particular, one of the most important things is if you you get a branding expert to come in and help you, help them, enable them. But all of the stories, all of the answers are within the company. Mm. What a branding company does uh, is to help you to distill, refine, and unearth the uniqueness of your company. And that's what we did with this company. And they they unearthed their stories, they unearthed their legacy, and the pride at which they had. And what it also meant is by creating a, a brand essence and a promise for them, it gave all of the employees, A, the ability to communicate it it's, it's themselves to their teams about what what had gone on, but it also meant, especially during COVID, they felt they had the license to make the, the business decisions because they had that guide mark, that signpost, that brand essence that underpins everything they do. And so a brand isn't just some fancy logo, um, some tagline that's chucked out. It is way, 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 way deeper than that. It's the ultimate source of why you exist and your differentiation. There's so many parallels between what you just described in working with an organizational dynamic, you know, a company that has history and that has leadership and, and different tiers of management. And what we do working with individuals is that if you're ever in a consultative role and trying to help someone with that vision and, and go there, the answer is always inside of them. Mm-hmm. It's internal there. It's not some external solution. It's not a product that you bring to the table and say, here's the magic solution. You know, just go on Twitter and you can figure it out. No, that, none of that's going to work. It's helping them to build that self-awareness and I love that, that you say that these things, it's in your history. Like this, this company has been successful over time. There's a, n- a kernel of truth there that we're going to help you to bring out and navigate confidently. You, you want to get them to a place where there's a, there's a confidence in who they are, a pride, and then everything else starts to make sense. And frankly, sometimes you and I might be able to step back then and they're able to embrace that. Ideally, that's what you want. Absolutely. And I think every time you have a potential client or even an existing client, because things change, 
you are unearthing their uniqueness because one of the most important things you need to understand from them is what is your risk tolerance? Mm-hmm. Because really, yes, there's a basic profile of who they are and where they want to be, but people's risk tolerance changes. And sometimes it changes by the quarter or sometimes it changes by the 10 years. And so by unearthing the uniqueness of individuals, you understand that sometimes you just got to remind people that it's okay, that you know they've said that their risk tolerance was this and the markets may have changed, but really you said that you can tolerate a little bit of downside in order to get upside or you, you don't want to do that. And so the risk tolerance is is a really important uh, factor for organizations such as yours. But in order to do that, you've got to understand how people tick. Yes, You've got to understand about the fact that you are not forcing people down a particular model that suits you, but that you're actually getting them to understand that they will tell 15 people about you because they trust you. And I think the epiphany for me, and I've always tried to figure out how my background as a liberal arts major in the humanities plays into finance. A lot of it is in listening to the language that people use, that everyone describes risk using language that's unique to their experience. And it's not technical terms. They use it in in terms that are very unique and you have to listen for it and turn around and use that to help them work through. Yeah. And and listening to words is because the words are triggers. Mm -hmm. They're positive triggers. They're human triggers, they're funny triggers, they're, you know, in terms of relationships, they can be frustrating triggers or angry triggers. Maybe people utter words they haven't even thought of saying and the impact it, it has on other people. And that's true of companies too, that, you know, you've only got to look at the guy that fired a load of people on Zoom. Oh my gosh, what a story that was. It's like, oh, I, I messed up. You sure did. <laughs> so it was a combination of technology, but the words. And if you're not thinking this stuff through, you're just doing the motions um, at a microscopic level, whether you write a release or you have a conversation with someone, the words you use to those most closest to you, and boy, we've had them with our kids, Mm -hmm. they pick up words in a very different way than you do. And of course, you'll get, oh, dad, you know, you've got to decide whether you want to be, oh, dad, or or whether you want to run with the cool guys or which words that you you need to use. Right for each individual circumstance. So you man, you think about that in terms of managing business relationships. That's pretty spooky. Mm-hmm. But it really, really is important to give it the time because um, it just differentiates you. It makes you feel and sound uh, more human and makes more people want to deal with you. John, this has been a great conversation. I want to close with just a couple of, I know you to be uh, someone who is a hobbyist and that's probably a light term to use, but becoming a barista and really immersing yourself in learning new things. Are there any hobbies that you've kind of rediscovered or you know discovered anew uh, in, in the last year or so? Wow. Um, what's the, I don't even know the word. I just immerse myself in hobbies because my dear 98 year old mom, always says how interesting for things, everything, how in, she's still interested. And I think that's my f- kind of one of my failures, if it can be that, is I'm interested in everything. And so everything becomes a hobby and everything becomes fascinating and it can be overwhelming at times. And uh, But I would say that uh, one of the things that I really got a load of joy out of was, I'd love to say guitar because I know you're a guitarist. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, it wasn't. Um, in spite of having a bit of time, I, I never followed it up because I look at people like you and Ed McKendry and some of the other, Craig Thatcher, and I think, that ain't going to happen for me. It's like, <laughs> it's like my f- colleagues at ski and I, they go skiing down. Oh, can I go back to skiing again? No. 
So <laughs> one, one of the important things in life, by the way, in business and whatever, is we learn to say no. And I've learned yes. to say no for a lot of that stuff. But the answer to the question is vegetable gardening. Um, really? Absolutely. Yeah. I, um, my dear neighbor next door uh, mentioned that they'd had this guy come in and just fix up his vegetable garden and create one. I thought, what a wonderful idea. We're in the lockdown. Um, you know, we, I can't go out and do anything. So this guy came in. It's called, they're called full circle vegetables, veggies, I think it is. And they are wonderful people. I shouldn't be telling you this because they'll be too busy to deal with me. But um, they came in, they created raised vegetable beds. He has the best seeds, the best uh, plants, and then we manage it ourselves. And uh, it has given me so much pleasure. Part of my uh, personality sometimes, it, it, maybe it's the old business thing, is to get ROI on this. So I'm trying to, how many cherry tomatoes did I get compared with last year kind of thing? But, but the beauty is to actually pick your own vegetables, to get it out of the garden, to have it on the table and just to be in the garden. You know, we talk, you talked about going for a walk, just being in the vegetable garden and just watching, um, mm. just watching the vegetables grow has been delightful. The other thing is, uh, I put a load of bird feeders up around the garden and just the, oh. the joy about, uh, of seeing the birds, uh, come in and, uh, is there anything more beautiful than a red cardinal, you know? So, uh, I've enjoyed those two things and it helps me, helps me with my writing, helps me with my thinking and yeah, it's been a, a joy. I can imagine that concept of, of how interesting has, has really helped you to be as, as good as you are at your profession, uh, just to, to, be, to be curious. Well, I, I said to my mom that uh, I'm going to get that tattooed on my, on my arm and just so she reminds her how important when she says it to me, it, uh, it just reminds me that if 98, you can tell her something and she finds it how interesting. I think we've got to listen to uh, each other. We've got to listen to what people are saying and not listen so that we can speak, but listen so that we can learn. And then we'll know how to be able to say how interesting. Excellent. I'm going to close on a musical question. I've got to ask you about British rock in the 60s. Do you have a favorite band or album? Oh, that's, that's your go-to. Terrible. Uh, one of the great guys on WDIY, so I'm going to get you in and give you, uh, ask for your top three tracks. And I had nightmares. I literally had nightmares. <laughs> I literally was waking up going, oh my God, how can I do three tracks? The 300, yeah. Um, uh, that's, that is a terrible thing to say. Um, of course, the Beatles were, uh, the Stones, the Kings, the Who, and all that were really important elements. But also, Bands like The Doors, The Doors were very big for me at the time. I guess, interestingly enough, 60s probably has to be The Beatles. I guess it has to be The Beatles. Now I think of it now, maybe at the time it was probably The Doors, actually, wow. because they were so, they because I was so interested in America and so interested in everything going on in the States that uh, for me, Weird Scenes Within a Coal Mine, which is a compilation of The Doors' uh, tracks uh, i remember driving along the m25 which is a circular road around london at about seven in the morning listened to um riders on the storm it was like chills down my back so the doors were terrific for me but again it's so difficult i talked to my wife the other day and it was like what track if someone said what's that track you would take with you to a desert island i think mm -hmm. it would be the oj's i love music um because it says what I do. It's just, uh, I, I don't think people in the Valley truly understand the absolute plethora of music opportunities we have here. It is, I kid you not, there are way more opportunities in the Valley for me to hear the music I want than I can in London. 
Wow. Uh, when I think of the magnificent uh, opportunities through ArtsQuest, through uh, Zollner, through Symphony, through mm-hmm. uh, the Williams Center, through Sellersville, um, I, and it goes on. There are just so many great venues. Oh, of course, the PPL and Sands and all the rest of them. Right. Any type of music you want to hear any time. I went out last night with my wife and we went to see a wonderful jazz trumpeter called Matt Cappy uh, at Sellersville. Was, people are still spooked to go out and so are we. So we're masked up and whatever. But he was amazing. And it was just and he was so happy to be out playing music again. And we were so happy to see him. And I could I will do everything possible to get Matt Cappy in the Lehigh Valley so that people can really hear the the, the joy of fusion jazz the way it used to be. Thank you for being an advocate for the, for the music community through your show, through just and just comments like that, because we really are fortunate to have the number of venues and the, the musical curators that we have who bring those types of acts. Absolutely. We are blessed. I took my kids to see the Preservation Hall Jazz Band for their first show at, at Music Fest this oh, year. And um, live music is just, uh, it's a cure-all for so much. That's the word, cure-all. That's a, that's a, it is the medicine. It's the ultimate medicine. And uh, I think the thing that really, really blows me away is the intimacy with which the artists connect with um, the local radio stations. We can get artists come on WDIY, and we do frequently. If you go to Sellersville, or you, I couldn't believe that we met Al Jarreau sitting outside the Music Fest Cafe saying, thank you for coming. Oh, my gosh. And, and talking to Matt Cappy last night as if he's a long-lost buddy. That is, there is no way in the world you would ever get that in London. It's a blessing. And anyone that thinks that the Lehigh Valley isn't just the greatest place to bring up a family and to enjoy the the, the, the culture in all its glory is deluding themselves. It's a wonderful place to live and be and to embrace. John Dodds, thank you so much for joining us and for all you do professionally and with your community involvement. This has been a really great conversation. Dennis, thank you so much and appreciate the invitation. Morton Brown Family Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. More information is available at our website, www.mortonbrownfw.com.